the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions, anything that's on your heart or mind, maybe what we believe as Christians and why, I'll do the best that I can to answer those questions. You need only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, Hit the Call Now button, and you can uh, use the hands-free feature of your phone and be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. It's Wednesday tonight. I'm going to be teaching uh, in the Old Testament. I'm really, I I could use everybody praying for me. Um, We're in that section of Isaiah that's a bunch of woes. Uh, the judgment of the nations surrounding Israel, the prophecies of their future, which is very, very grim. Uh, And these are really difficult Bible studies to sit through. So I feel sorry for all the people that are coming. Yet at the same time, there's a lot of really good stuff for us as well. Uh, And then, uh, of course, it's Wednesday now, tomorrow, Thursday. Paula will be live in studio here on the Date Day edition of the program. So ladies, that's the day we set aside especially for you. And you can... Um, call you at your question, didn't you? Let's go right to the questions that we've got while we wait for your phone calls. This one comes from Chip from our email inbox. He said, my question's about Second Peter 3, 10 through 13. When Peter is talking about the earth being destroyed by fire, is he referring to the event happening before or after the millennial kingdom? Um, the short answer to he's referring to the to, to happening But let me read those verses, and then we'll talk about them just a little bit. Um, Verse 10 in 2 Peter chapter 3 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with it, forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Peter would have been a Bible teacher, Chip, that I liked. You know, uh, the application is really important. So he says, look, all these things are true. He gives us the facts. But then he immediately sends it into sort of our court and says, okay, with all of this knowledge, knowing it's true, how should that affect your lives? 
And before I answer the question in any other detail, let me just say this. Everything the Bible uh, writes to us is written we might do something. I don't mean work, salvation. I don't mean that at all. But, but you see, we're the ones who changed. And then as born-again believers, we hear these things about the future for this world, which isn't very bright unless you're a Christian, a born-again believer. And it ought to change the way we live because Peter is saying the one thing that we really need to be focused on is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The time is short, Peter says. Oh, God is patient, unwilling that any should perish. The time is short. And because the time is short, we ought to be motivated then not only to live holy and godly lives, becoming more like Christ, this process of sanctification, but we ought to be about the business. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians that we are to redeem the time. Why? Because the days are short. Let me go back to your question. Um, there are some in this passage, say Peter is speaking about a world that's going to end with a nuclear war, so fierce that everything and everyone in it will be destroyed. Um, uh, Chip, I don't believe that's the case that he's talking about at all. Uh, we know that Jesus is going to destroy the world. Um, that's going to happen when he returns in Revelation chapter 19. He's going to destroy his enemies. And then we're going to go into the millennial kingdom and in that millennial kingdom, then things are going to be, it's going to be sort of a curse-reversed world that we live in. And so things will be pretty good. So no nuclear war is in view here. Um, what he's talking about is a cataclysmic change that will occur after the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth when this world has been redeemed as much as possible. But because sin has entered the world, it can't ever be the way God wants it. And because God wants to make something brand new for us, he'll have to destroy what's here. So it's after the liter- or the uh, thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. It's God who's going to push the button. It's going to destroy things. It's not man. So um, that's what Peter is talking about. Thank you for the question, Chip. I hope that made sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, here is James from Seguin who called in to the producer and said uh, he's from Seguin. Can you explain more the order uh, repent and believe found in Mark chapter 1, verse 15? John the Baptist says uh, the order is to repent and believe does that make any difference between versus believe and repent? You know, James, that's a really neat thing that you pointed out. That's a couple of things. Um, when, when we're told to believe, repentance then follows believing. Um, John the Baptist is under a different dispensation. Though he's found in the New Testament, he is a very, very Old Testament prophet. And because of being under the law, then it's sort of do, and that's what the repentance is, and then believe. So the, the difference there, James, is a result of, of um, John being of a different mind and heart set. Um, but believe me, as New Testament Christians, uh, everything follows believing in the second chapter of Acts and the fourth chapter of Acts or third chapter of Acts actually the end uh, Peter's preaching to these big crowds and he says what must we do in other words you, Peter's convicted him of killing God the Holy Spirit's fallen and Peter has convicted them and and they, they say you're right we're guilty of this what shall we do and the answer is the same to believe Everything that happens after that is a result of believing. Uh, we can try our best to repent of our sins, but apart from believing in Christ, uh, our repentance is shallow. So, James, uh, it's a really, really good distinction that you found. John is under a different dispensation, under the law. We are not. Believing is always the Kickstarter 
for everything else that happens? Great question. Thank you, James. Let's go to Cibolo, Texas now and talk with John on line two. John, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Um, I was wondering if you could explain to me the uh, Matthew chapter 27, um, and it starts uh, in verse 50 through about 54 when Jesus dies, and it talks about the uh, the veil is torn in two, which I understand, but then that many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So did that happen before Jesus was resurrected or after? And who were these saints and what happened to them? Sure. Great question. And, and it's, a, it's a passage of scripture that um, New Testament commentators have been sort of arguing about for years. And it's such an obscure passage because it's not mentioned um, um, by any of the other uh, gospel writers at all. So what we've got is just a, a very Jewish presentation of the effect of Jesus's death on the cross. Now, it's very important because in verse 53, it says they came out of the tombs and after Jesus's resurrection, they went in the holy city and appeared to many people. It appears, John, as though um, what we're being told here is that upon his death, these men, and maybe some women, came out of the tombs. We don't know who they are. Uh, they were raised to life. It would appear that between his death and his resurrection, they remained in the tombs or by the tombs, but not yet ready for uh, the public to see. Um, um, when the veil was opened, uh, the veil was torn from top to bottom uh, upon Jesus' death, uh, it signaled there's a new way, a new approach. And I think, John, what is happening here is these men would have been raised to life. Um, uh, again, we, we don't know if these are saints of renown or saints of old or just ordinary people who are believers in Jesus. But obviously, the people who knew them before they died would be moved greatly by these uh, men appearing. So when they were made to appear is that the dead bodies of the righteous men uh, were exposed. Um, in a Jewish culture, nothing could be more undignified than that. Uh, and yet they were raised to life because of the resurrection. Now, after the resurrection, they appeared and went into the city. Now, we don't have any information at all about what they did, but no doubt they declared the glory of God. No doubt they would be a symbol to 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 many of the Jews who are living in in Jerusalem um, that that uh, this this Christ who you put to death is God in human flesh. He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for, uh, and um, I believe with all of my heart that they would have been sharing that message when they went in to the city and appeared to groups of people. One other con. Um, um, one other question, or not question, but one of the comment I have on this, John, is that I personally believe, and this is just me, there's, there's no way to prove this biblically, uh, but I personally believe that these uh, men and their ministry immediately following the, the uh, resurrection of Jesus, uh, I believe that they were used by God to to prepare the hearts of the people who in some 50 days from this point would be uh, on the day of Pentecost. They would be up among those 3,000 who were saved. So, John, that's, uh, that's a, again, there's no more information given to us than that. Does that help you? It does, but then uh, also... To go along with that, I totally understand when the curtain was torn in two, we now have direct access to Jesus, and I sure That's thank correct. Jesus for that. But mm -hmm. does the does history ever explain why the Jews didn't try to put another curtain up? Well, uh, you know, it's it's impossible for us to get into the mindset of the people. I think their their biggest priority. Uh, was uh, and by the way, they would have put another curtain up 
um, uh, after a period of time uh, because the temple wasn't destroyed until 70 AD. So that's some 38 years later. And that would have meant that there would have been sacrifices uh, provided for sins. And the, the high priest on the Day of Atonement each year would have gone into the to the, the temple. But, but something we have to understand about the Jewish mindset as it relates to the Holy of Holies um, uh, uh, Jerusalem was teeming with people at this time and when that curtain of the temple was torn everybody who saw and, and, and looked into the Holy of Holies would have thought they were going to die uh, they, were, they were looking at something that had never before been seen by anybody except the high priest and they would have immediately thought they, they, they would die um, but but remember, this was torn from the top to the bottom. This was the hand of God, and it was God's statement saying to the to the people of Israel, "Before you had no access, but now you have full access. You're no longer separated from me or the Holy of Holies. You no longer have to depend on the High Priest to make atonement for your sins." And um, for for 50 days until the Holy Spirit fell, nobody would have understood that. So. Um, that that even gives more impact to Peter's words when they asked him, brothers, what shall we do? And he said, uh, repent and believe, uh, acknowledge your sin, and then believe in Jesus Christ. So um, they they certainly would have replaced the curtain in the temple. Uh, It would have again become a very Jewish place of of sacrifice and worship. Uh, But all the while, there was a message going on in the streets that, that Jesus is alive, and now he's given us access to the Father in heaven. Great, Great question. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Uh-huh. God bless. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Anonymous. Uh, is Donald Trump the Antichrist? The answer is no. Uh, he may behave like the Antichrist sometimes, but he is not the Antichrist. You know, it was um, during uh, President Obama's reign that we'd get this question, is he the Antichrist? Uh, but no, the men that we have uh, uh, experienced with uh, are not the Antichrist. They're not even approaching the Antichrist in evil, nor are they um, nearly as... Um, famous or uh, as as um, eloquent uh, or as passionate as the Antichrist will be. So no, Donald Trump is not the Antichrist. Now, one thing I want to say in response to this question is, and, and again, I'm assuming, uh, generally speaking, that the people who call here or listen to this program are Christians. We who are Christians, we need not participate in internet activity about things like this. We don't need to look at conspiracy theories or opinions about what somebody else is doing. I say this every time I get a question that's similar to this. More time in our Bibles than we do on the internet. That way we won't be persuaded by those people on the internet who have all these crazy things going on. So uh, anonymous Donald Trump he is our president, and he is somebody that we need to both respect and pray for. Um, I have no illusions. Donald Trump is not a Christian. He's not been born again. At the same time, we want him to be, and until he is, or unless he is, we won't really have a man with God's heart in the White House. Our hope is not in people. Our hope is in Christ alone. Here's a question from Stephen. Stephen says, Pastor Ron, do you worry about speaking out so much about social issues like LGBT issues? It seems like you're setting yourself up for someone to attack you. Um, You know, Stephen, I don't worry about it. No, Um, um, I'm asked by God to, to declare his word. And so I don't speak out against LGBT people. I just tell them that God loves them and what they're doing is wrong and they need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So um, uh, I don't, I, I just, I can't worry about it. If I do, and you see this going on in our church culture now, Stephen, 
um, there are um, too many so-called preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ who are compromising on these issues because they don't want the flack. Uh, honestly, Stephen, I'm a little tiny, tiny cog in a great big pond out there, and uh, I'm not famous, and uh, I, I do my best just to preach a word about the business the Lord's called me to, uh, and so I don't really think my exposure is all that great. Uh, if it happens, um, then we'll deal with it. The, the Lord is you know, these are the kinds of issues that uh, all of the apostles in the first century church had to face every day. They were always under the threat of death just for doing what Jesus told them to do. Now, we in the United States, we, you know, we've never experienced that kind of persecution. And um, um, I think maybe a day is coming when that will be true. Um, but for right now, Stephen, I think I'm just a little tiny fish in a great big pond and I don't think uh, too many people worrying about it. If I started worrying about it um, I don't think there's much that I could worry about anyway so Jesus said do not worry so I try not to worry. I'll be honest with you and tell you that there are times I have nightmares that um, of, of things like that but who the source of the nightmares I try not to deal with it very much. We've got five minutes left in this half program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-30-KSLR. There's a question from Ben. So can you tell me the difference between the flesh and the spirit in the way the Bible uses it? Even, yeah, it's a really simple difference. Um, walking according to the spirit is walking uh, in the will of God. It's being with Jesus. And it's being obedient to what God has told you to do. Um, for example, the Bible says flee from sexual immorality. So if you give in to sexual immorality, you're in the flesh rather than in the spirit. And Paul says, so to the flesh we... ...the carnal way, the human way of doing things always think of the book of Judges uh, when I get questions like this. Uh, it, it was characterized by a time when people did what seemed right in their own mind or in their own eyes. Um, that's all fleshy. When we wake up in the morning and decide that we're going to do what we want, the way we want, that's our flesh. Uh, when we surrender and kill the flesh, and we need to kill the flesh every day, Ethan. When we kill the flesh, then... The spirit takes over. The problem is too many of us, we let this, the flesh live and we find ourselves getting in more and more trouble. If, Ethan, you are in the spirit, it's easy to tell. Your life will be of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's flesh. If you're kind, if you're impatient, that's flesh. On the other hand, if you're the spirit, your life is constrained. Then know that you belong places it should to do the work that he's called you to do. So the difference is the difference between being blessed and not being blessed. Thank you for the a more important question say than the question every day when we get up what are we going to do with Jesus who's in charge I always picture Jesus um, wanting to sit down on the throne in my heart you know I, uh, I've always pictured my heart I don't mean the muscle but the center of who I am there's a throne in there and when I wake up every day standing on that throne Boy, mornings this get up. I'm so fleshy. I've got to actually say, okay, you get off the throne, and I invite Jesus on the throne of my heart. And whenever He's on the throne of your heart, Ethan, you're going to be in a really, really good place. Here is I got less than two minutes. I think I can do this one. Um, anonymous question: Can be born with the wrong gender? 
Um, the answer is no. Now, we know there are rare, rare instances of people being born uh, with uh, sexual um, uh, apparatus from both genders. Um, but, but we live in a fallen world and, and uh, abnormalities happen. But um, anonymous, we are the gender that we're born with. doesn't matter what we do to change it. It doesn't matter what we think. Uh, if you have um, male DNA, you're a male. If you have female DNA, you're a female. And none of that changes. You can spend all the money in the world on, on, on transitioning from one to another physically, but it doesn't change the fact that you are what you were assigned with at birth. And I think the best way for us to understand how to thrive in this world is just to accept who we are don't deny it. Don't wish it was something else. I wish I was an NBA basketball player, but I'm too slow, too old, and I can't jump. So you got to make peace with who you are. That's the truth. We've got 30 minutes left in the show. 340-95. Your live calls and questions are told for 77630. KSLR will be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the show, 340-9585. I've got two anonymous questions, and uh, I think one of them is, um, well, they're both a little bit misguided, but, but I'll get these out of the way while we're waiting for your phone calls. Uh, the first one says this. What should Christians do about white privilege to make race relations better? Let me tell you what I think you should do, Anonymous. Stop reading this nonsense from the media. My goodness, white privilege. I can't do anything about being white. You can't do anything about being white. As Christians, here's the only thing we should do, and it's nothing to do with white privilege. We should respect that all of the people are the objects of God's love, everybody, everywhere, and we should live our lives without any prejudice. It's that simple. Now, I know when your kids go away to university now, they're told that white people are the cause of all the relations. I don't know if you saw on the news, anonymous um, sports news, uh, there's a basketball player named Kyle Korver, good basketball player, but he's just come out with an op-ed piece that's been published high and wide. Uh, every white person's a racist, and white people are the problem, uh, are, are, are the problems that, that uh, black people in this country experience. All of that is absolute nonsense. It's 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 a, a it's brainwashed. Is there? Of course there is. Of course there is. But you see. We're not of the world. And as Christians, then we need to set aside every prejudice. If not, preceding God. And I think the, the best thing, Anonymous, I can tell you as a Christian, is that we don't contribute to the problem of race in this country. Because as Christians, and I don't care whether you're uh, African American, I don't care whether you're Hispanic, I don't care. If you're white or if you're Asian, we don't see color. Now, I know that sounds trite, and every time somebody says that, especially a white person, we get belittled. But you see, we are forbidden from seeing color. We're forbidden from seeing differences. There's only two groups of people from God's perspective, saved and unsaved. And if you're saved... then you've got to have the heart of your Jesus, your Savior. So it's very important we don't get caught up in these traps. The world is absolute nonsense. You see, heaven's wisdom is foolishness to those in the world. And yet we who belong to Jesus, we know that the wisdom of this world is the real foolishness. So it just doesn't matter. And as believers, what we do is we keep opening our hearts and our doors to anybody and everybody. 
and we treat everybody the same. Now, I don't know what you know about me, Anonymous, but I'm speaking to you as a man who has been uh, with the most beautiful black woman in the world for 49 years. We have two boys that the world would say are, are, are black because they're half and half. Um, I've watched my children be persecuted. I've seen them as objects of racism. Uh, I, I've seen especially my older son um, be stopped for no reason at all by police growing up because he was always driving a nice car. I was wealthy and owned a car dealership. And so I know he was harassed. I am not being naive. I know prejudice exists. It just cannot exist in the life of a Christian. So just stop reading that. Don't let people convince you of that which isn't true. I am not prejudiced, and I am very, very white. I'm Iowa white. And so um, remember, we're citizens of a different kingdom. And there's nothing this world has that can make us think or should make us think any differently. For any of you in this audience, if you've got prejudice against uh, anybody, repent. If you're a professing Christian, repent. Here's the other sort of apologetic anonymous question. How do we explain to unbelievers why Christians are homophobic? Uh, again, I think he's leading the lies. I think you stop believing the lies that the media and those who are gay are trying to accuse us of. Is that simple? It is not homophobic. Phobic means fear. It's not homophobic to tell a practicing homosexual that homosexuality is wrong, sinful. That's the act of love. It's, in fact, it's, it's the act of utmost love. I want people in heaven, so... If somebody gives me the opportunity, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I'm not telling them you can't be gay. I'm going to tell them you need Jesus. If they accept Jesus into their heart, then he'll convince them of sin. I think sometimes we try to clean the fish before we catch the fish. So what we do is we just tell them in love that they need Jesus. Now, it is true in our culture that when you tell... Uh, a gay person that uh, they need Jesus? No, nope, then I, I couldn't be gay. You, you you can't do that. God made me this way, and of course that's not true. However, however, they need to know that there's hope. Even if they don't think they need hope, I can promise you that everybody, no matter your sexuality, apart from Christ, everybody's miserable. They know they're missing something. That's the way we're built by God. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says that we're made literally toward God. In other words, everything that we do is for Him, and the purpose of our life is to worship Him. So if we're not fulfilling that purpose, it's it's sort of like a, a thoroughbred racehorse. Can you imagine how frustrating for a thoroughbred racehorse, American Pharaoh, the, the most famous horse in the last 10 years? Imagine what it would be like if you took him out and hooked him up with a plow. And said, run. He could speak. He'd say, I can't. I got this plow I'm trying to pull. Um, he was built to run in the same way we're built to play, to praise the Lord. And anything short of it is going to create an emptiness, this vacuum. That's why famous people, rich people, um, people, their eye lies by men. This is why they kill themselves. So anonymous, don't buy the lie that we're homophobic simply because we say something they're doing is wrong. If somebody was an armed robber, I'd say, you know, I love you, bro, but you're an armed robber. That, that's that's wrong. you got to stop. And then I'd tell them about Jesus. The same thing is true for the gay community. You know, um, I pray... Uh, literally daily, for a revival in the gay community in our country. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that happen. Um, I pray for revival. I don't mean an emotional revival. I mean a revival of soul and heart. And I have 
men and women, um, some some kids who I know are practicing homosexuality, a couple of the people on my prayer list when I get to this point in my prayers uh, are very famous people. They're, they're people that shake their fist at God publicly with millions of people watching every day. And I include them by name in this prayer. Lord, show them that you love them. Convict them of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And I think we all, as Christians, ought to be praying those very things. Again, Anonymous, and I'll close with this, we are not homophobic because we say what they're doing is wrong. There's nothing homophobic about that. 9585, if you have any questions you want to call. Manuel wants to know what faith or obedience. Um, that's sort of like the repent and believe question earlier, Emmanuel. Um, faith always comes first. Um, you know, we don't have the power to obey God unless we, we actually believe in him. Um, but obedience is a natural outworking, a natural um, consequence of believing. When, when you, you see Jesus for who he really is, when you understand that he died for your sins and you believe then something happens and you want to be obedient. Acts chapter 5 verse 32 says God gives the Holy Spirit in the context that is always in power to those who obey. Obedience is necessary in the power of the Holy Spirit but saving faith is available to everybody at any time. All we have to do is ask for it. So manual faith is always first and everything that comes from faith is a natural outflow of believing. Raul asks, Pastor Ron, does God ever violate our free will? Um, I got this question yesterday, Raul, and I was starting trying to think, can I, can I ever imagine a situation where God would, would override our free will. And I, I went through every scenario I could think of, and, and I, don't think he, I don't think he ever can. Uh, if violated our free will, then no longer uh, be able to love God. Uh, I mean, we, we might be subservient to God. He could make us. He could do anything. But God wants to be loved back. He wants a relationship. And so God never violates our free will. You know, Raul, what I was thinking about when I got this question yesterday was the people that we all pray for. I've got my list and you've got your list. People that we all pray for. When I pray for my unsaved family members uh, or even even uh, I'm an unsaved son and, and his wife. Um, when, whenever I pray for them, I say, Lord, save them. Nothing such an easy request. Lord, save them. I know they're asking questions. I know there's 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 an emptiness in their heart. Want them in heaven, Lord, save them. But implicit in that prayer, Raul, is that I know that God will do everything, stopping short only of violating their free will. They have to make the choice. I'd like to believe that that everybody I'm going to pray for is going to get saved, but the truth is that's just not accurate. Um, the people are going to get saved when they come to the end of themselves, when they're ready to, to stop sinning, when they're ready to trust Jesus instead of trusting in this world or the things of this world. And there's some people that just never do that. And because we're believers, we're never promised that automatically our family members are going to become believers as well. It's just not a promise that the Bible makes to us. So, for God to violate free will would be completely outside of his character, his nature. And it's just something wrong that he, he, he just could not do uh, and still be just and fair. So, we keep praying for our families, our loved ones, but at the same time, we realize that we've got to deal with God on their own. Here is a question from Dallas. Would you please comment on the pre-wrath rapture theory? Yeah, again, Dallas, uh, pre-wrath rapture theory is, is really, really new. You need to know about the, the rapture theory. It's not, but that's the, the, the clue. 
um, the the pre is maybe 11, 12 years old is all. Uh, it's chief uh, promoter, this guy named Marvin Rosenthal, um, and he is um, um, a very persuasive guy. He's got a very large internet presence. Uh, he's written some books on this. Um, um, a lot of other rapture theory types have come to his side of the argument because they're looking for some sort of compromise between the pre-trib and the post-trib positions. And the pre-rapture theory simply states that before the the final seven judgments are poured out, the, the vile judgments or the bold judgments, before they're poured out, he says that's when the wrath of God comes in and not before, and that Christians will be on this earth until, that means we'd be here through the the, the trumpet judgments and we and we'd be here through the seal judgments seal judgments kick off uh, the wrath of God being poured out in this world that 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 will happen in the first three and a half years of the great tribulation um, the the trumpet judgments will happen um, in the, the second three and a half years the the vile judgments or bold judgments will be at the very end and he says that we're going to be here through those and just before the vile judgments are poured out, the the rapture of the church is going to happen. Now, there's so many problems with that, Dallas. It just makes no sense at all uh, when you look at the scriptures that deal with the rapture. But but even more than that, uh, all you have to do is read the carnage that happens from the seal judgments and from the trumpet judgments. And there's no possible way that you can conclude that those judgments are not the wrath of God. True, they're escalating judgments, things get worse and worse with each set of seven judgments. But but clearly, all of the judgments from Revelation chapter 6 forward are the wrath of God being poured out in a Christ-rejecting world. Now, because... Paul writes to the churches in Thessalonica that we're not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. Not only that, we are appointed from uh, to, to rescue. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, writing to the church at Philadelphia. He says, I'll keep you away from the scene of my wrath being poured out. That, that, that wrath that's going to come upon all those who live on the earth. We're not going to be living here. We also need to remember that in in Genesis uh, chapter 18, when uh, Jesus shows up with his destroying angels to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, um, we're told in his negotiations with with Abraham that that Abraham says, will the righteous judge of all the earth destroy the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you, Abraham said. Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, they're going to just go through a little a little while. And, and because our sin has been atoned for, because Jesus took the wrath of his Father on him for us, it would again violate God's character and nature to judge us or to pour out his wrath on us again. Can you imagine this world, and we'd say, but Lord, you're not angry with me, and he'd say, oh yeah, I'm not. Okay, you can come up here and be with me. Of course, that's just a way to illustrate it, but um, uh, the pre-wrath rapture theory of Dallas is um, just doesn't hold water. Um, so, hope that helps. Charles says, what kind of works is the Bible talking about when works and faith are mentioned together? Um, Charles' works is not just, okay, I'm going to do good deeds. It's never intended to be communicated that way. Uh, the works of the Spirit, I said earlier to another questioner, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. From Galatians chapter 5. So we don't have to worry about the what kind of works. It's not like, okay, I'm going to do something and, and I'll be acceptable to God. Uh, we're only acceptable to God when we accept the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So 
the works is a result of faith, um, not something that we do to increase our faith or even to demonstrate that we do have faith. We believe and we're changed. I think I've had two questions on this program alone that, that kind of deal with the same things. Um, one of the things we have to understand about meeting Jesus is if you really meet Jesus, he changes you. He'll change as fast as you'll be changed, but make no mistake, everybody who meets Jesus is changed, and we become a different person. Let me just give you an example from my own life. I was Ron the Jerk. Uh, I made Paula's life absolutely miserable. And when I met Jesus, that changed. Now, I wasn't perfect. I still had all kinds of issues. I had all kinds of pride. Uh, I was afraid of being exposed. All the same things that, that normal people deal with. But I couldn't be mean to her anymore. I couldn't be ugly to her anymore. Uh, I almost instantly, Charles, stopped cursing. Not because I'm, I'm thinking, okay, uh, now I'm saved. I've got to have works. Not that at all. It's because the very being of who Ron was changed when Jesus came to live in me. And I think, Charles, that's the message that's missing in this church culture that we live in. You know, it's grace, 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 and God loves you just the way you are. The, the silly, crazy messages that we get from us. But that's not the message of the Bible. We don't come to Jesus have a new improved version of our old life. We come to Jesus for new life completely. We come to Jesus because he's the only thing powerful enough to change the condition of the human heart. In our flesh is no good thing. When you meet Jesus, you know that. You really know it. Do you remember, Charles, when you first got saved? Remember how grateful you were? It's because you saw Jesus. And then you knew who you were. When you meet Jesus, you can't say, well, I'm a good person. I'm going to try to be better, do better. When you meet Jesus... Ask you for to be, and that's Jesus. Because our wife left us, and we want to come to Him and have Him fix it. on to Jesus so that He'll make us rich or make us healthy. We don't come to Jesus because, well, He'll improve the quality of my life. We come to Jesus because we're on our way to condemned to an eternity of torment. And Jesus is the only answer. You know what else, Charles? Jesus doesn't mind if come to him and say, you know, there's nowhere else to turn or I would. He doesn't even mind that. He's just happy that you turn. And so when that happens, you change. And then the works of the Spirit begin to characterize your life. Thanks for the question, Charles. Here's the last one we'll do today. Jose says, uh, if the Holy Spirit wasn't given until after Jesus' resurrection, how do we explain those who are filled with the Spirit in the Old Testament? Uh, really good question, Jose. Uh, the, the relationship that the Old Testament heroes uh, had with the Holy Spirit was completely different, unique, to that experience that we get to enjoy every day. The Spirit lives in us. The Spirit came up on them. about John the Baptist says he had the spirit from birth uh, he had a direct pipeline to God but the other Old Testament heroes and, and even in John's case he didn't have the spirit of God in him relationally the way we do but you see in the Old Testament when you see the spirit coming upon someone Samson is a good example or or uh, uh, David uh, on many occasions. Uh, when the Spirit comes, remember, that person is as God's representative to his people, Israel. And God is protecting them, and God uses 
men that were raised up and women who were raised up as judges in the book of judgments in the most carnal time in Israel's history. The spirit would come upon them and they would have these great feats of strength and power. But then the spirit would just as quickly depart because the job was done. So it wasn't a permanent relationship. I say this all the time, Jose, Calvary Chapel. I tell people, look, if, if you go to, we love reading Hebrews chapter 11. We think, oh, all those great things that were done. Uh, would you love to Moses and speak to a rock and water comes out or part the Red Sea? And yet, if you could ask Moses, we could sort of be transported back to the time he lived and explain to Moses the kind of relationship we have with God, Christ in us, the hope of glory. He would change places with any one of us in a minute because they couldn't imagine those Old Testament heroes. They couldn't imagine having intimacy with God the way you and I do. So the difference in the Old Testament heroes, and you're right, the Spirit wasn't given until the day of Pentecost. But when the Spirit was given, and you see all these miraculous things that happen in the book of Acts, that was a gift that flowed from within the apostles to the others and the spirit would then fill them and that's when the church began multiplying you know Jesus was filled with the spirit without measure but he lived according to the law and when he was murdered there were only a few people following him in one day with the spirit there were 3,000 men who were following that's the difference Hey, thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Ladies, remember tomorrow, Paula, live in studio on the date day edition of the program. May the Lord bless you and keep you. See it for tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.